This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. If you're not a fan of creepy crawly creatures, this might not be the favorite episode for you because we're talking scorpions and spiders of the state today with biology professor at Millsaps College, Dr. Brent Hendrickson. We'll talk about what to do before a sting or bite, how to identify the different species, and the role they play in Mississippi's ecosystem. Also, Dr. Majors here ready to take some pet questions, and we'll also discuss cat declawing. You can join our conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring it's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Libby, do you have a couple events to share with us? Yes. Let's see. The Pascagoula, um, Pascagoula River Audubon Center down in Moss Point has got a free day, Saturday, June the 15th, which sounds pretty fun, free from uh, 10 to 3 that day. It's a river jamboree in partnership with the city of Moss Point. So if you have wanted to go to the Pascagoula River Center, Saturday would be a great day to do it for free. Or if you've been before and know how much fun it is, it, it, I'm, I'm happy to tell you you can go for free <laughs> on Saturday. Yeah. And it's right on the river. Uh, you can uh, sign up for river tours. You do. I think you better call in advance if you want to do a river tour on the boat, though, because that's pretty popular. Mm-hmm. That was You tried to do that, and it got... It got rained out, got yeah. Rained so out. we're going to try yeah. to have to reschedule that later well, this summer. you could do that Saturday if you wanted to, <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, and we oh, mentioned... Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. and, the, and the dinosaurs are at the Natural Science Museum here in Jackson. Okay. And uh, pretty incredible. I was, I've was i been up there a couple of times to see them, and uh, they're um, really a good set of dinosaurs. And I think every generation of these animatronic robotic dinosaurs getting, gets better and better. Yeah. They, they're very realistic <laughs> sounds and um, look... That is kind of funny when you think back video games and that sort of thing. Technology has advanced so much. You, you look back there and you think, we were really you know, happy with this kind of stuff. You know, so it's good to see things progress uh, on. And so that will be probably as most exhibits are for, for several months. Yes, it's, it's on through Christmas. But okay. um, you might want to go more than once, so don't delay. All righty. Uh, we mentioned cat declawing in the opener because the state of New York – uh, might become the first state in the U.S. to ban the declawing of cats under legislation approved by lawmakers mm-hmm. at the request of cat owners, animal welfare advocates, and many veterinarians who call the procedure cruel and needless. Declawing is already illegal in much of Europe and in several Canadian provinces, as well as Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Denver, but no other U.S. state has voted to ban the procedure, which involves amputating a cat's toes back to the first knuckle, which I think maybe a lot of people are not aware of. Uh, Dr. Major, do you have thoughts, feelings on cat decline? This gets into a, what shall I say, ethical, moral, whatever, uh, however you want to approach that. Uh, it can be quite a debate. Uh, basically, uh, there are things that you can do for your cat that don't involve declawing, uh, such as soft paws, which are little caps that you put on the claws, Uh providing adequate places for the cat to scratch and 
Um, a cat has a need to scratch, and that's one of the problems with uh, being totally opposed to it. A lot of people, if the cat goes and destroys a $5,000 sofa, uh, which they can do, uh, a lot of times that cat gets tossed out or sent to the shelter. Uh, so there are ways that you can handle that. It'd be interesting to see how the laws go. Uh, of course, New York and East Coast, West Coast always have uh, some of the first uh, laws like that, and we'll see how it goes. But I would say, say that one of the problems with declawing, when you declaw a cat and then the cat does get outside, it may be unable to defend itself properly. Uh, I don't really recommend cats being outside, uh, but we do have a lot of outside cats here uh, in Mississippi. Uh, I've heard, and you know, based on my own cat, <clears throat> that their their claws or their paws are kind of their first defense. A lot of times, when I pick my cat up or something, and he doesn't like it, one of the first things he does is he puts his paw up there. And I've heard that when they don't have their claws, they sort of resort to their secondary line of defense, which would be biting. And so, many times, a declawed cat will be a biter. Um, also, and this is just my personal opinion. If you have a five thousand dollar couch, maybe you should not be a cat owner. I mean, you know, to me, this is kind of like my dog barks too much. What can I do about it? Well, my book, you should know that going in. And if you don't like a barky dog, then you don't get a dog that barks. And as you said, this is something that, and the other thing, based on how much my cat loves a scratching post, it's obviously something that they like to do and need to do. So. I don't know. I'm. I again. This is just my personal opinion, but I'm not. I'm not certainly in favor of of declawing cats. It's, in it. it's a dilemma, if you will, just to be able to talk it out and uh, certainly to understand it. But uh, I, I would say that there are ways that you can avoid having to declaw a cat. And also, too, with again, with my experience, you know, he'll start scratching on something. If you're diligent, you know, you can kind of cur- curb that behavior. It sometimes is kind of be a battle there, but uh, I don't know. To me, that's kind of, I don't know, fun is the right word, but that's sort of just owning a cat because you got to accept some some of their behaviors uh, because they're not doing it to deliberately ruin your furniture. It's Again, it's just something uh, they need and like to do to keep those claws sharp and that sort of thing. Kevin, do you think you really own your cat? (laughs) (laughs) Other way around. Also, uh, we have an email here, and I won't go too much into specifics, but uh, basically they're saying that uh, they are feeding their dog a vegetarian diet that consists of one-third beans and lentils, one-third grains such as quinona or brown rice, and one-third vegetables with supplements. Uh, when they mentioned this to their vet, he's concerned about uh, a diet-associated cardiomyopathy, uh, and they've uh, learned that the condition is related to taurine deficiency, but sometimes not. Uh, and so they're wondering uh, what your thoughts are about feeding a dog this uh, vegetarian diet. And this, again, is another kind of sticky question. I wonder, I guess, why, they, why they're going with a vegetarian diet. It may be personal with them from the standpoint of, what they uh, perceive for themselves. Uh, the main thing, is, if you're doing a homemade diet, is to be able to balance it properly. Uh, there have been some evidence of some of the pea-based and uh, being possibly uh, having contributed to cardiomyopathy in, in, in dogs. So I would be careful with that. Make sure that the protein source is adequate and a good pro- source of protein. Dogs are basically omnivores. 
Uh, they do quite well on a variety of things, but I would suggest that they diligently look through the literature. There are some good books out there on home cooking for your animals, so I would suggest that uh, they search that out, and certainly I would suspect it would be good to have a vitamin supplement uh, to help balance out that uh, diet, but it can be done. And then in uh, pet food in general, I think we talked about this before. Uh, if you get a reputable brand, uh, are you pretty pretty safe knowing that that's that's okay for your pet and that you know that that's going to be sufficient for their their dietary needs? In general, uh, the pet foods are much better than they were thirty years ago. Let's say uh, they're uh, pretty much uh, balanced properly. Uh, there are certain standards that they have to meet. There are some pet foods that are better than others. Uh, but in general, uh, I'd say our pet foods are, are good. I won't say a particular brand necessarily because there are a lot of good ones out there. Uh, it is confusing because a lot of the pet foods tout the uh, uh, basically uh, the fact of grains. They feel like the grains in some cases uh, will cause both allergies and some, some problems. So they talk about grain-free. Uh, and then there's the opposite extreme, just like these people would like to feed a vegetarian-type diet. So do your research. There, As I said, there are good books out there. If you'll go on Amazon, uh, go online, and you can find a lot of good information if you're willing and want to fix food for your dog. And again, to wrap this up, I would say, you know, uh, when dealing with your pet and its diet, always work with your vet. Uh, they'll work with you to make sure that your cat or dog is getting uh, what it needs out of its uh, its daily chow. So it's uh, time for our first break. Uh, when we get back, we'll begin our discussion with our guest, Dr. Brent Hendrickson. Scorpions and spiders might, might be the most popular of Mississippi creatures, but they play a key role in our ecosystem. So if you have questions about scorpions and spiders, you can join our conversation with a phone call. If you have a pet question or if you'd like to tell us what you've uh, seen when you've been out and about in Mississippi, give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the day is Dr. Brent Hendrickson, biology professor at Millsaps College. We're going to be talking today about scorpions and spiders of the state. If you want to join the conversation with a question or a pet question or a comment, give us a call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-672. 7464. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Brent, uh, thanks for joining us again on the program. It's been a couple of years since you've been here, but if you would, remind us of some of the work you do uh, as a professor at Millsaps. I've been really fortunate. Uh, this past year, I've been on sabbatical. So uh-huh. I've, I've been uh, focusing my research on working on a, a field guide to the tarantulas and scorpions of the United States. So okay. I've been spending the last year or so a lot of trips out in the field, out in the desert, Arizona, California, Texas, 
um, finding all the different species, photographing them, you know, recording data so that I can work on putting this this book out. It's a book that I've that I think I wanted when I was a little kid, <laughs> and uh, so I'm happy that I'm, I'm getting the opportunity to to go ahead and do that. Um, but at Millsaps, I'll be returning in the fall to begin uh, teaching classes again um, and doing research with a number of excellent students. All right. Uh, we've got a couple calls here already, so let's uh, start with uh, inviting Bill in from Greenville. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air with us. Oh, yeah. Good morning, y'all. Uh, uh, first off, uh, uh, I've been interested in spiders all my life, and, and uh, I see, see some rather big ones around here occasionally. Uh, nothing like a tarantula, but I guess it may be like biggest the silver dollar or so. But what I was wondering... Is there any tarantulas in Mississippi, and is there any spiders that are bigger than these big old brown and uh, sort of black look ones that I see once in a while? I saw one the other day. It was pretty big, and it had a great big uh, sack, I guess, of eggs on it. Uh, but I was just wondering if there's any tarantulas in Mississippi or, or, or smaller, smaller spiders like tarantulas, but just smaller. Yeah, well, th- thanks. Thanks for your question. Um, yeah, one, the, we, we do not have any tarantulas in Mississippi. Uh, the closest that they get to the river is maybe Crowley's Ridge area in in northern Arkansas. But you can get tarantulas fairly regularly in Arkansas and Louisiana. Um, we don't have a lot of spiders in the state that approach the size of some of the tarantulas that are that are close to Mississippi. Um, however, there are some spiders that reach pretty impressive uh, sizes. So it sounds like uh, the spider that you uh, were seeing with the, the egg sac might have been a wolf spider. And some of the different wolf spider species can get really large. Um, the species of the, the genus is called Hogna, um, where you, they can get you know leg spans of two and a half to three inches, which is a pretty impressive size um, spider. There's also um, some relatives of tarantulas known as trapdoor spiders, which can attain pretty decent sizes. But uh, folks generally don't see those out in the out in the wild too often. But they can you know reach sizes up to maybe inch and a half to two. Um, now, if you're looking at spiders and webs. Um, some of the bigger species that we come across are the golden silk spiders, sometimes called banana spiders locally. Um, they, they reach really impressive size, especially the adult females where they can grow, you know, their, their abdomens, especially in the fall after they've made it and they're filling up with eggs, um, can, can be become very engrossed and in, in, in large and um, you know the co- common sort of garden spiders as well which are which are pretty frequent but in terms of tarantulas in the state uh, we don't have any I have heard some sort of anecdotal reports of some perhaps tarantulas in the western part of the state but I don't think those observations have been validated by by researchers all right, Bill, thanks for your call. Good to hear from you. We've got uh, some open phone lines if you'd like to join our conversation this morning with our guest, Dr. Brent Hendrickson, talking about scorpions and spiders. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, uh, Brent, I think maybe some of us uh, breathe a sigh of relief about no tarantulas in the state, but uh, what about um, scorpions? Yeah, so there there is uh, one scorpion in Mississippi. Uh, I think it's 
given a common name of the the Southern Devil Scorpion, I believe, which is <laughs> which is a, a little inappropriate. Um, uh, it's it's a you know a pretty nondescript brown species, maybe an inch and a half, two inches in length, um, and it's not found everywhere in the state. It's not found in the Jackson metro area, as far as we know, um, but several locations where it has been reported and observed in, in, in pretty good numbers, such as down in the very southwestern corner of the state in Wilkinson County, um, Clark Creek Natural Area down there. Uh, the, the scorpions are pretty abundant going south into Louisiana and in the sort of the um, Tunica Hills area. Um, Tishomingo uh, State Park has a pretty good population of these scorpions. And where I like to go, it's, it's closest is actually Meridian. Uh, so Bonita Lakes, there's a really, really big population there. So whenever I need scorpions for show and tell or something like that, I'll just make the quick hour and a half uh, drive over to, to Meridian and go blacklight. And the population density there is really, really impressive. I've, I've seen um, in, a, you know, I, the way I find them is I go blacklighting. I use a an ultraviolet light at night in China because they will fluoresce under that light. And um, I've seen regularly, you know, 50 individuals in about 30 minutes of black lighting. And that's just along the main trail. So that, that population is doing really, really well, which makes me really excited and happy. <laughs> so uh, why do they light up under the black light? Yeah, that's a good question. We, you know, researchers don't really have an answer for that. Um, all scorpions fluoresce under ultraviolet light, some more than others. Uh, so this is a characteristic that, um, you know, had, had, evolved you know over 400 million years ago uh Mm. it's a really really impressive um feature uh some researchers currently think it has something to do with their ability to receive and and sort of transduce light so they're they're um they're actually capable of using their entire bodies as sort of a giant photoreceptor which is really beneficial to an animal that's primarily nocturnal so any little bit of ambient even ultraviolet light can can direct them to, to seek shelter and other sorts of things. So the current hypothesis is that they're probably, this fluorescence is more of a byproduct of them using their bodies as photoreceptors and they they just, as a byproduct of it, they're sort of transducing this visible light when they're shined with ultraviolet light. Okay. I've got some calls, both pet questions and spider questions. So let's begin again on the phone lines with Andrew calling in from Vicksburg. Good morning, Andrew. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Also, I have a uh, three-year-old uh, lab, and I was going to find out, uh, is there any type of, uh, like, all-natural um, plea or tick, you know, preventative for, for a dog? It's a good question. <clears throat> some of our listeners may have some uh, things that they use, and it may work. Uh, basically, though, the ticks are very difficult to repel and to kill, and I would say that I do not know of an all-natural uh tick repellent or tick killer uh and of course our dogs being like they are they're in the brush or can get in the brush uh or in tall grass and get ticks quite readily uh there are some flea type uh preparations that people use but if you have a severe challenge of fleas you're going to need something that's uh probably not natural to take care of it i wish i had those products like for kids babies young kids around which products like the you know the front line or the um i would if you have small children i'd go with the oral flea and tick product 
Uh, that way you would not have any exposure to a child. In other words, there are several uh, of those. Uh, you see them advertised. They're good. Uh, Brevecto is one. lasts for three months. It's oral. Uh, there are others as well. And uh, I would suggest that those would be a good good product if you're concerned about contact uh, with a child uh, with a topical. All right, uh, James, we appreciate your call. Let's uh, hang on, move on. Uh, next we have Steve, who's called in from Madison today. Good morning, Steve. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Um, I have a spider question. I, I just wondered if there is an easy way to detect a brown recluse. I mean, is there anything significant that... Uh, I mean, you see a lot of big brown spiders here. Uh, how do you tell if it's a brown recluse? I'll, I'll hang up and let you answer. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, good, good question. Um, Brown, if you're if you're willing to get close enough, um, brown recluse spiders are actually pretty easy to identify. They they have a number of distinct features, um, but again, it's whether or not you can get close enough to identify them. So the they are six eyed spiders, whereas most other spiders are eight eyes, and they're arranged in a very specific sort of manner. And um, another you know name for brown recluse spiders sometimes called fiddleback and the reason for that is they have sort of a a pigmented violin shaped mark on their on their head essentially um so that's a another distinguishing characteristic but there's a number of spiders um you know fulcids and uh, some philostatids of these other types of spiders that can look superficially similar. And so it's not uncommon for a lot of spiders that are not brown recluse to be identified as such. Um, so I would recommend doing a little bit of work online. Google Google Images is really helpful um, to look at some pictures of brown recluse spiders and also spiders that have been confused with brown recluse and, and take a little bit of time to, to study those images. Um, once you get sort of a search image for brown recluse, um, they're, they're actually really easy to identify. Um, and you know, if you're dealing with a web building spider, you're not going to be really dealing with brown recluse. They don't. They they do build sort of a, a, a you know a messy silken nest, but you don't frequently find them in a an actual web. Um, so you can you can um, you know identify or at least you know rule out a number of different species if they're found in, in actual webs and whatnot but i'd spend a little bit of time especially there's a lot of really good images online that show um the eye pattern especially the little violin shape on the cephaloflorax that i think would be helpful for a, a successful idea on that all right uh next we've got uh, robert calling in from natchez robert you're on the air with us good morning good morning thanks for taking my call my question is about spider bites now we all know about the poisonous spiders and how much damage they can do. But as we all try to fight our arachnophobia, appreciating the good that spiders do, is there any way to know how to deal with spiders other than killing anyone that crosses your path to know which ones you could handle and not be bitten? Uh, good question. I, I, my general rule of thumb is to, to tell people not to, to handle them. Um, you know, nearly all spiders are venomous so they do contain venom that is used to incapacitate their their prey but oftentimes that venom's not very detrimental to to humans um, that being said a lot of spiders are capable of inflicting bites um, that that can be painful just from the mechanical wound alone the venom might not be of much consequence um, but my general recommendation is to to not um, to not handle spiders um, 
but uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, I suppose if someone wanted to handle them, you know, avoiding the, the one, the, the, the sort of the big three, I suppose, in, in Mississippi, including Brown Recluse, the, the Northern Black Widow and the Southern Black Widow, um, all of which are readily identifiable um, and, and probably cause the most morbidity in the state in terms of bites. But um, any of the large spiders are also capable of inflicting, you know, a potentially painful bite. So, again, my, my general recommendation is not to, not to handle them. All right, Robert, thanks for your call. Let's get one call in before our next break, and it's James in Purvis. Good morning, James. Go ahead, please. Good morning. I wanted to say that I heard you talking about your trips out west, and uh, I fell in love with a museum called the Sonora Desert Museum, which mm-hmm. is a nature preserve outside of Tucson. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this this weekend is their pollinator weekend. So I wanted to ask, are there any arachnids that play a role in the pollination process? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not familiar with a lot of literature, but you know, uh, in terms of that might suggest that spiders are good for pollinating, but there's a lot of spiders that will use flowers as a nice ambush point for capturing those pollinators <laughs> that are that are coming in. Um, you know, crab spiders in particular are ones that I think about that will, you know, they'll sit and they're often camouflage yellows and whites and they'll blend in with the, with the petals of the flowers. And so they're probably being dusted with pollen. And if they're moving from flower to flower, there's no reason why they couldn't pollinate um, the different plants, but they're not, you know, most spiders aren't actively seeking the plants themselves. They're seeking the the things that are attracted to the plants, but they probably can play some role in pollination. It's just something I've never really thought about. So that's an interesting question. All right, uh, James, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Time for a quick break. We are visiting today with Dr. Brett Hendrickson from Millsaps College, and we're talking about scorpions and spiders. If you have a spider question or a spider story or a pet question for Dr. Major, why don't you give us a call and join the conversation? The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or you can email the show. Just send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield is the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest today is Dr. Brent Hendrickson, professor of biology at Millsaps College. Spiders and scorpions are main topic this morning. If you have questions about that or a spider story that you'd like to share with us, give us a call. Also, Dr. Major here, ready for your pet questions. And again, if you've had a brush with wildlife when you've been out and about, we always like to hear about that as well. The number to call to join the conversation is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Brent, uh, before we leave scorpions and, and hop into spiders, um, are um, how, how big are the sp- uh, scorpions that we are found here in Mississippi? Uh, so, so the scorpions here aren't, aren't too large, maybe an inch and a half to two inches in length. Um, a lot of people have no idea that they're they're even in the state. They're but they're pretty secretive nocturnal animals. Um, they'll they'll occasionally get in folks' homes or they'll find them in the backyard under a wood pile or something like that. And I think a lot of people are actually shocked to to, to find them. Um, but they're they're fairly small. Um, their stings are not really of any consequence. Uh, I have not been stung by this species, but I've been stung by a number of other species, and they're probably comparable to you know probably not even as bad as a wasp or a bee sting. Mm-hmm. 
And again, they have that. It's they use the the tip of their tail. Is that that's, where their stinger is? That's right. Yeah. So their their abdomen is is modified at the very tip with a, with a sort of a, a bulb that contains venom glands and a little needle device. And they have musculature inside that bulb that will squeeze the venom. Um, in fact, a lot of researchers who are interested in in extracting venom from scorpions for research purposes can a, a, attach little electrodes to the bulb of the stinger to to, to stimulate the muscles in order to expel the. <laughs> venom is really cool <laughs> we're visiting today with dr brent hendrickson from Millsaps college talking about spiders and scorpions we've got some open phone lines at one mpb ring it's one 672 you can email the show as well send it to animals at mpbonline.org got another caller on the line so we say good morning to kathy who's in meridian good morning kathy you're on the air with us good morning go ahead um, I am from Meridian, and I noticed that Dr. Hendrickson said that there was a large population of scorpions at Benita Lakes. My question is, why at Benita Lakes? What is the habitat that, that attracts them there? I'm just interested to know why we have such a large, large population of scorpions in Meridian. It's a good question. So the, the, this particular species is widely distributed um, throughout the, sort of the southern Appalachians, and um, there's a few populations that get down into Mississippi. So the, the you know what is it about the habitat itself? It's kind of hard to say, but they tend to like areas where there's um, a lot of pine trees. That's also not very wet. They, they tend to like areas a little bit more dry pine trees where they'll frequently during the daytime they'll hang out and hide under the the pine bark at the bases of these trees or under logs and whatnot and um, some of the main mountain biking and, and and running trails that are in Bonita Lakes provide that perfect habitat you know a little bit more upland so that it's not wet and it, you know with all the rain that we had in the spring and whatnot in the winter um, you know they're 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 able to stay fairly dry, so that's one of the really interesting features. Now, what what I what I'm trying to understand, my colleagues and I are actually working on a project right now, tr- trying to understand how and why these scorpions are distributed, how they are, and what we've noted is, you know, we've got this population in Meridian, we've got this population all the way, you know, in the southwestern part of the state in Wilkinson County. But in between those two locations, we don't really find anything. Uh, so we don't find the scorpions in between these locations, and we're trying to understand why that's the case. Because um, our some of our data suggests that they're not that they're actually really close, um, like genetically to each other, which tells us that they they've probably shared you know, ancestors very very recently as well. So they they haven't been separated for long periods of time. So we're trying to understand a little bit more about the geology and geography of, of the state and surrounding areas understand how these species and this particular scorpions become distributed the way it is. But yeah, Meridian just happens to, to have the perfect habitat there and they're very, very abundant. All right, Kathy, thanks for calling in this morning. Uh, let's press on. Next, we'll go to uh, Susan, who's called in from Vicksburg today. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air with us. Um, good morning. I uh, grew up in West Texas and um, hmm. it was our habit um, to Anytime you were camping or at camp or anything, you had to knock your shoes out before you put them on because there was always a scorpion in there. Mm-hmm. And um, they loved concrete floors, I guess, because it was cool, cooler or something. But we were, um, you know, we were all accustomed to getting scorpion stings if we didn't um, knock our shoes mm-hmm. out. And we used the um, 
I guess back then it was more common to have snuff around and um, somebody would, you know, mix up some snuff with some saliva and put that on the sting and that would um, take some of the sting out. But they really hurt. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Susan, thanks for calling in, sharing that with us. Uh, Let's move on. Next, we'll go to John, who's called in from Madison today. Good morning, John. Go ahead. Good morning. How do you do? Good. Uh, I was camping in Arizona about 20 years ago, and uh, around the campfire, uh, I, I, uh, I got a spider bite on my, close to my knee. And after 20 years, there's still a round red area with dead skin. Um, and I never knew what kind of spider, I think, what was it, a wolf spider, or what, what kind of spider would do that? Uh, where in Arizona? Do you remember? Uh, north of Tucson. So north of Tucson, so maybe between Tucson and, and Phoenix. I mean, there, there's a lot of different spiders out there. Um, were you up in the mountains, or were you in the desert? We were in the high desert. In the high desert. So, the, yeah, it could have been a wolf spider. Um, did you actually see a spider that was on you that, that potentially bit you, or...? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, it, it can be any variety of things. So some of the larger wolf spiders are capable of inflicting a bit of a bite that can cause a little bit of reaction. But, you know, 20 years um, after the fact, I, I, I don't think that's probably lingering from, from a spider bite per se. Uh, but if it's something that's bothering you, I'd say definitely go to, to a doctor and, and get that looked at. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Wouldn't necessarily attribute to it. bothered me, but I was always just curious. It was that spider that gave me the red mark, and it has never gone away. Huh. If I kind of scratch it, you know, some skin might break off. But, uh, well, I don't know. Yeah, not sure. Yeah, you might want to follow up uh, and just ask, you know, maybe next time you're in for your uh, checkup or a physical uh, check with your doctor to see what uh, that might be. But uh, thanks for calling, uh, John. Let's move next. We've got Kathleen from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Oh, good morning, guys. And it's no rain. <laughs> it's the first time I've called in every two weeks in a row, and there's no rain. Listen, I have two quick comments. Uh, one about the fleas, which y'all all know I've been fighting over here. Because we had such a wet year, it seemed like it just gave them growth hormones. But I, I am using uh, that diatomaceous earth. I, I, I just had to take the plunge and see. Mm-hmm. And it is working so far. Great. I put it on uh, all their little bankies in a big garbage bag and put a tablespoon in and shook the dickens out of it until everything was covered. I laid it back on top of where they usually lay and stuff and haven't been seen. Please. Good. I mean, they were there a day and then a little less the next day. Then I rubbed some on the cats. And yep. then I put, um, according to the Internet, someone told me, uh, a third of a cup to... Uh, 13, 15 pounds of dog, uh, cat food and, and shake it. And I didn't do that because I figured with my luck they wouldn't eat the rest of the 13 pounds. So I took a bowl and I put just a little bit uh, sprinkled on there, shook it up and they ate it. Okay. And it looks like it's working. I'll keep y'all posted on that because Great. I'm very, very Great. leery. But I'd like to tell a story you know me, I've got critter stories out here. <laughs> like I lost my my mind, I had a heart attack. I had just put some clothes down in front of the washer, sorting my piles like a good little lady. I went back to pick it up and put it in the dryer, and this big, I'm talking the biggest palm of my hand, <laughs> black, hairy, 
ugly, can't say no more about it. I put it down before it got far. It didn't last, of course. I can't have it getting after me or the cat. But I didn't ask it if I did. I don't know what it was, but it was big. <laughs> Wolf spider, it sounds yeah, like, yeah. huh? Yeah. <laughs> it was one of those ones you see in a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> So, yeah, Kathleen, we're, we're speculating that it uh, might have been a wolf spider. So uh, thanks for calling in. Always good to hear from you. And keep us up to date on, uh, on your flea control uh, endeavors. Um, so, Brent, you mentioned uh, the brown recluse and then two kinds of black widow spiders as the, the venomous ones that are here in Mississippi that I guess people could be a little bit concerned about. Are any of them more dangerous than the others, or are they all equal threats? The, you know... I think it's one of those things where you know the, the venom itself reacts differently. So the black widows have a neurotoxin which goes after your nervous system, which can cause you know pretty bad muscle cramping and, and, and assorted sorts of things. And brown recluse venom goes after something completely different. It has these enzymes called phospholipases, which actually attack your cell membranes. So very different types of venoms that can you know they're going to have very different symptoms and very different sort of effects. Uh, but most folks that are probably bitten by them may not ever know or don't show severe symptoms. Um, but for severe bites from either of them, they 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 can be pretty nasty in their own ways. Um, brown recluse bites take a really long time to heal. Um, I mean, it's causing an, an ulcer in your skin, uh, so it takes a really long time for those things to heal. Um, and, you know, the, the black widow bites can cause incredible pain, nausea, sweating. Um, but thankfully, you know, people don't generally die from the bites of these spiders, even without going to a, a, a medical professional, although that is the, the, you know, it is recommended that people go to see a doctor if they are bitten by them. But there's not a whole lot to really worry about. So what should someone do if you come across uh, one of the three? And again, based on the name, the brown recluse, uh, you'd have to be. They're not out in the open, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's, it's I, I've been in Mississippi for, gosh, 11, 12 years now, and I have yet to see a brown recluse in the state. I've seen them in surrounding states in, in pretty big numbers, and I know that they're here. I know that they're fairly common, but I have not come across them. So, yeah, they are incredibly reclusive. Um, I think if, 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 a, if a person comes across them and, and sees them and positively has them identified as brown recluse, one of the things is to... You know, I, I, I personally don't advocate killing spiders out of fear, but in some cases, folks might need to do that. But if, if you're able to, you know, remove them, some people will take, a, you know, a, a paper towel or a cup or something and scoop them and, and, and release them. Um, that's probably my recommended approach to that. Um, but usually where there's one, there's probably more. And so they, they, they tend to like, you know, hiding in, in dark areas. If there's piles of, um, you know, logs in the backyard or something, you think that they might, those are areas that might want to be checked out for, for the spiders and cleared out. If there's any debris or rubbish, um, those are areas that are going to attract insects, which are going to attract the spiders. Um, so those are things that would want to be tidied up and, and those sorts of things. Um, but, you know, if it seems to be a problem, then you can always, you know, try calling an exterminator or something like that to, to take care if, of the problem. And if they want to send us a picture of a spider, yes. if they're in doubt, I can get that to Brent very easily. Yes. Okay. So do that. 
All right, uh, we need to take another quick break. Keith is on the line. Keith, we'll get to your question right after this break. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with Dr. Brent Hendrickson from Millsaps College, professor of biology there, and he's helping us learn more about spiders and scorpions. Dr. Major's still here, ready to take pet questions as well. The number to call to join our conversation is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the show after this. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, and our guest today, Brent Hendrickson from Millsaps College. We've been talking about spiders and scorpions and also taking some pet questions. We've got some phone calls to get to, so as promised, we'll start with Keith, who's called in from Jackson today. Good morning, Keith. Go ahead, please. Good morning. How you doing? Good. Yeah, um, I have a 13-year-old chihuahua that was diagnosed with heart murmur um, about a month ago. And my veterinarian put him on, I think it's called LASIK and uh, Alapil or something. Right. Yeah, and uh, so basically what's going on with him now is that he have, he's he, he gotten the, uh, the pot belly, and it's kind of getting hard for him to walk. His legs have kind of been swelling. And I think one of the medications, uh, maybe LASIK, some sort before the flu or something, and so far, nothing has really been, been happening. You know, maybe two of his legs will swell up and they may yeah. go down, the other two. Any recommendations or anything that well, I could try? You know, it sounds like this is pretty far advanced. That's yeah. that's a sad thing about it. And yeah. it seems like at that age that uh, a lot of chihuahuas do develop uh, uh, some cardiac problems. Right. But if his legs are swelling and he's getting ascites, probably the fluid in his abdomen, yeah. uh the only thing I can imagine, and talk to your vet about this, obviously, would be to increase the dosage of the Lasix, uh, yep. the diuretic, uh, as much as he can take. And uh, it may not be a good thing. I wish I could give you more hope than yeah, that. I, and I, uh, I do know the the only thing is that he still have an appetite. You okay. know, he still eats. But. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's yeah, good. Yeah. But good luck. And, and keep in touch with your vet on that. It's, it may be that he could add another drug, which could help. So... Anyway, good luck, and uh, I'm sorry that he's having this issue. All right, Keith, thanks for the call. Let's move on next. Uh, we've got Mikey in Mobile on the line. Good morning, Mikey. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. I'll try to be quick because I, I know you've got other folks, too. Um, uh, I have been through spider bites and um, have the worst of all wasps. No, the worst, worst, hornets. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, having had some issue, particularly with the, the second two, um, learned that, that, thanks to Kathleen, who called in earlier, uh, that apple cider vinegar applied immediately helps to at least mitigate some of the, the development of problems that you're going to have later. Um, and then putting antibiotic on it also. Um, but scorpions, I have not really had, and I'm not that far from Hattiesburg. <laughs> I'm like a rock throw from it. Scorpions, I have not had any experience with. Is there something, again, that can mitigate if you get, and I'm saying a bite, but it's from scorpions, it's a sting, right? That's right. Uh, um, you know, m- most scorpion stings, they're, they're fairly painful. Um, 
to different, yeah, to, to different degrees. Um, but the, the pain tends to be pretty short lasting. Um, you know, I've been stung by wasps a number of times and every wasp, yellow jackets, paper wasps, um, hornets, um, their stings are far worse than any scorpion I've ever been stung by. And, you know, I've taken Benadryl for those um, to mostly alleviate the itching that happens after the fact. But scorpion stings, you, you'll, you know, at least in my experience, um, you you might get, you know, that initial sting. There's it, It's pretty sharp and it can be kind of hot um, and it'll last that, that initial pain might last 15 to 30 seconds. But then it, it tends to subside pretty quickly. Um, there, there's only one species in the United States, and it's in Arizona that has a pretty, you know, I guess an excruciatingly painful sting. Um, but thankfully, those aren't aren't, aren't in our neighborhood. Um, so anything that you know, it's sort of a, sort of a sit and wait um, with the stings. I think by the local scorpion out here. Um, the pain will subside on its own, I think, really quickly unless there's an adverse reaction to it, in which case I'd say seek, you know, medical advice on that. Okay. Thanks, Mikey, for your call. Next, we've got uh, Roy, who's called in from Terry. Good morning, Roy. You're on the air with us. Hi, Roy. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Okay. Um, let's uh, put that on hold, see if we can get him in just a minute. So instead, we'll go to Marianne in Jackson. Good morning, Marianne. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. I was calling to see if it's all right to give my dog cat food. I have a cat and a dog, and I get wet food for both of them and dry food for both of them. Now, the cat won't eat all of her wet food, so is it okay to let the dog finish it off? Uh, good question, and uh, I would say we see households where the cat wants the dog food and the dog wants the cat food, but uh, in moderation, I see no problem with that unless there's a weight problem with the dog. The cat food is usually higher in fat and protein uh, than the dog needs, but if it's small amounts, I see no problem with that. All right. Well, that's okay. what I needed to know. Yes, ma'am. All right. Thanks for your call, Marianne. Uh, let's see. Uh, try Roy one more time. Roy, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, so uh, got a couple of minutes left. Um, anything else, uh, Brent, that you wanted to mention that we've not uh, covered yet? All right. I think more than anything, you know, I need to be an advocate for the spiders. <laughs> um, you know, they, they, they tend to get a pretty bad rap um, based on, you know, media reports and anecdotal reports from a number of, of folks. But, you know, the spiders and scorpions in, you know, in Mississippi and all over are incredibly important ecologically. They're they're feeding on a number of harmful insects. Um, and also, you know, from a research standpoint, they're really, really exciting animals. Um, you know, some colleagues just in the last couple of weeks who were finally able to, to sequence up um, some spider silk genes that produce glue so that, you know, some, some of the spiders are building webs will incorporate glue into their webs to make them sticky. 
And by obtaining the, the sequence, which was really challenging because the sequence of these spider genes, it's, it has a lot of repeats, which just makes it very difficult to, to get the entire length of these. Um, but this research has applications now that if we, if we can sequence this, we might be able to synthesize these proteins that are, that are found in the spider silks, and they can be used for a variety of different you know, applications, everything from making sort of eco-friendly pesticides and, and a number of other things that, that can be really, really beneficial long term. So they're, they're really rich sources of information, especially with the chemicals and spider silks and venoms, scorpion venoms. Um, in fact, there was another study, I think, within the last couple of days that came out on scorpion venoms. Uh, some compounds found in scorpion venoms have been found to be um, be able to kill, you know, antibiotic-resistant TB, um, staph infections, and related sorts of things in, in mice. And so if that's applicable to, to, to human models as well, then, you know, there's a really rich source of, of, of compounds and interesting information that we can get from these animals. And if we're mindlessly killing them we can't uh, can't do that so. if they get that glue they need to call it the spider-man glue <laughs> that's right i like it <laughs> that's going to wrap us up for today creature comforts is a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio and funding is provided in part by listeners just like you our show is produced by java chapman and our call screener today was michelle mcadoo so for dr troy major libby hartfield and our guest brett hendrickson i'm kevin farrell inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10 it's autocorrect with the lady auto mechanic allison walker we'll be back next thursday at nine for another creature comforts it's heard only on mpb think radio <laughs>